Welcome, favorite listeners of the whole wide world, to a ninth, wow, a ninth episode of the podcast. It has been fun, it has been sweet, it has been challenging, it has been rich. And thank you for listening to this process of being ready to be vulnerable and wrong and finding purpose and looking for freedom and hunting for ideas and gathering new concepts and wrestling own and twisted thought patterns. I am 29 years old now, mid-pandemic, a stuttering mess, I may be dyslexic XY representative, Hispanic by origin and I still have not found my quote-unquote career. If you're in a similar island as me, I hope this helps you too. You're not alone. So let's learn together. Let's support each other. Let's question everything. Let's listen to each other. Well now, today, have you ever wanted to eat the foods that you love without feeling guilty for it? Do you want to be free from your own judgment because you did not go for a run after that delicious calorie charged and flavorly orgasmic pizza with extra cheese, extra sauce, sauce with touches of basil and chili that while you eat them, then while, while you eat it and savor it, it hugs you and says, I love you just the way you are. Are you done with diets and cutting your favorite foods and then binge them? Then hate yourself while you cry over an episode of Tiger King while your cat looks at you, judging you for watching the suffering of their cousins and from the human that feeds them plastic-covered pellets of food or wet food feasts off a can? Are you desperate to achieve a healthy body and a healthy mindset that stops you from that stops shaming you for everything that quote-unquote you do wrong well I fucking do I fucking do I want all those things and I want to be able to love myself and love the food I eat and once and for all end this hellish devilish should be cancelled vicious thought pattern that disempowers me from my deep core If you are like me, boy, I have a treat for you. The wonderful, powerful, insightful, wise, strong, and cheerful Zoe Nicholson gave me a piece of her time and explained how I can achieve all that illuminated state through intuitive eating. Zoe has 16 years of experience in the field of nutrition and is the co-founder of the moderation movement and Love What You Eat. During this supreme talk, Zoe debunks several wrong pieces of information that I had acquired through the years and challenged uh, complete worldviews that I was laying my foundations and understanding of food and nutrition. So witness all her expertise and my humble ignorance um, and and the questions that I made about something that we don't really know much and that it's okay if we don't. 
so thank you and enjoy hello everyone i'm here with zoe zoe say hi please hi everyone nice to be here <laughs> and uh hey zoe i've um i've always enjoyed uh talking to you and, and dancing together as well and um i really wanna wanted to invite you because uh there is um, I think I'm ready to be challenged in a lot of preconceived notions I have about food and about nutrition and about probably other things that I don't know. But my ignorance welcomes that very much. I, I, I need to ask you something because last, last night you uploaded something on Instagram that I was like, whoa, um, you, you uploaded something that says no need to track calories in anything. Indeed, I did. And I, and I wanted to start with that because for me, that I'm not a scientist. I, I listen to a lot of different things and I read a lot of different things. That's like, uh, if you want to have a set goal in mind to like reach certain body type or a certain ideal weight, whatever, you need to track calories, especially like athletes and all that. So is there a context to that or is it just in general? So yes, like with everything in life, there are um, what am I trying to say? There's so there are there will be some. There's always exceptions. So there is a, a small percentage of people who might find it useful, helpful to track calories. And athletes, elite level athletes, um, certainly may be those people. But not all elite level athletes um, need to do that. But for the average day, everyday person like you or me. <laughs> Um, and the people that we dance with and our friends, um, there's actually no need to track calories. So there's a lot of context behind that. So do you just want me to dive right into it? Always. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for you, so your listeners know, I'm a, a dietitian or nutritionist. Um, I've been practicing for 16 odd years now. When I first started as a dietitian, I was the, I guess what the traditional um, dietitian, what maybe most people think that we do, which is, um, and still what a lot of dietitians do do. So either um, help people manage their eating, um, manage their weight through the way in which they eat, whether that's understanding calories, portion sizes, food types, that's that type of thing. So for the first 10 years of my practice, um, that's what I did. So I do predominantly pretty much all now these days, um, private consulting. And then about six years ago, I stumbled across a different approach to managing eating. So it's got a few different terms. Um, it can be called the non-diet approach. So I'm often referred to as a non-diet dietitian. Um, unfortunately, diet is in our title which is why there are some dietitians that will now prefer to be called themselves um, nutritionists. How is that called? Is the Monta, you say? The non-diet approach. The non-diet so like non approach. Dietitian, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but even calling myself a nutritionist, um, whenever people ask me what I do now, I feel the need to explain, yes, I'm a dietitian, but I don't do what most people think dietitians do. So, um, in fact, I often say this to my clients, um, the, the more conversations we have, the more in-depth we get, um, the less we will talk about food and certainly the less we will talk about nutrition. 
Um, if nutrition comes up, it's generally to take the focus off nutrition. Um, so essentially we are a culture, which is kind of a, almost a global world now. Um, certainly more affluent cultures have become obsessed with nutrition to the detriment of nutrition. We have so much nutrition knowledge. We don't need most of it to eat well. So sometimes I like to say, you know, the West, Western world has the greatest nutrition knowledge, but some of the poorest eating habits, the, some of the highest incidence of diet-related diseases, certainly um, eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, so I guess the difference between the, I guess, a traditional dietetic approach or what most people think is what they need to do to manage their eating and what I do is external versus internal. So what I mean by that is, and I shall often use the word, the, the phrase diet culture. So we kind of live in this diet culture now where everybody's so, uh, everyone's sort of become a bit obsessed about what they're eating or how much they're eating and body image, body weight's tied into that. Um, but what I mean by external is a lot of people have become reliant on using external information to manage their eating. So by that I mean they're thinking, but they're tracking calories. Um, they think they're using portion sizes. They're following um, meal plans, healthy lifestyle. I'm doing the, the air quotes here, the, the healthy lifestyle programs. Um, I mean, there's, you know, you've got 5-2 fasting, you've got keto. There's so many, there's, there's so much advice out there on how yeah. to eat, so much external advice. And one thing I always like to make the point, the reason why there's so much different advice on how to eat well or what to do to manage your eating is because there's no one way to eat. So there's always, you know, there is a gazillion and one different ways of eating well. So if you're looking for external advice, um, you're going to always come across lots of conflicting information um, and, as I said, a gazillion and one different ways of doing it. So this non-diet approach, which um, is also referred to as, well, uses a, a process called intuitive eating. Okay. Um, and I'll explain a little bit that in a moment but intuitive eating is about kind of loosening the grip letting go of a lot of not being so reliant on all that external information so not needing to worry about calories portion sizes etc and instead tuning back into our own bodies so learning like reconnecting with our appetite cues so i guess intuitive eating is the ability to recognize when you're hungry and there's different levels of hunger it's the ability to recognize when you're full and there's various levels of fullness. And actually, I've just recently sort of shied away from using the word full, fullness, and it's recognising when you've eaten enough, because that can entail fullness if you have to. And it's recognising what satisfies you. Um, and I always like to say to people that intuitive eating isn't something magical that myself or the other non-diet dietitians have made up as an alternative to, to dieting or the traditional model. It's how we're born eating. No one needs to know how much food to give a baby. No one needs how much food to give a toddler. Parents just provide the food and the children just instinctively know how much to eat. Wow. Um, in fact, try and force feed a toddler, you're at risk of them throwing food back at your face. Yeah, um, true. <laughs> it's kind of so, the same with animals as well. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> when he said that, that made me, um, reminded me of, one of my favourite quotes, I've got lots of favourite quotes, so you might get a few of them today, um, but this is from a, he's a food journalist, 
um, in America and I read one of his books and in it he says, humans are the only animals walking this planet that seek professional help with what to eat. Now, I read that just as I was, as I like to say, transitioning, <laughs> transitioning from being your typical sort of diet, weight loss dietitian into what I'm doing now. And I remember there's this part of me that thought, oh, I should be offended by that. But a huge part, like it just resonated with me. I went, oh, my God, that's so true. And I think that's I got to a point in my career um, where I was just thinking, this is kind of crazy that I'm having to show adults how to eat, if that makes sense. In fact, let me give you, this is a really um, funny analogy, which I I can't claim fame to. This is, I heard this from the author of the official intuitive eating book, which which there are a couple of American dietitians. So Evelyn Tribbley, I've actually heard her say this. She's one of the authors. Um, But it's just a really interesting way to think about how absurd it is Um, that we rely on all this external information to eat. So when we're hungry, our stomach releases a hormone called ghrelin. When we're full, when our body recognises we've had enough, our brain releases a hormone called leptin. So essentially there's organs releasing hormones to let us know when to eat, when to stop eating. In the same way, when you need to go to the toilet, your kidneys release a hormone. Yeah. Do you ever need to ask anyone else when to go to the toilet? Not really, no. <laughs> Anyone else, how much to pee? <laughs> Stop peeing. Yeah. That is, it's utterly ridiculous. You hear that and just go, no, that's just absurd. But that's what we're doing with our appetite cues. Rather than listening to our own bodies, we're following all this external advice. So I think that's just kind of, yeah, so it's a way to think about it so the the approach that the intuitive is that they is what is it the intuitive eating approach um yeah. uh, harnesses is to be able to listen to our bodies when we are hungry and to stop when we shouldn't continue to eat not so focused on what we're eating yeah so it essentially When we're really attuned, the more sensitive we are to our hunger and our fullness and what satisfies us, um, it's about about having connection to those foods, but actually trusting your body with what to eat. So it's trusting your body with what to eat, when to eat, and how much to eat. Um, And this is the thing. So by the time people come to see me, they've usually sort of been through multiple diets. They've just been so confused by all the information on the internet. And they feel like they don't know what to eat anymore. But one thing I always assure people is that you do actually know how to feed yourself, but you've just been really confused by all the mixed information out there. Um, And, yeah, so if I've got someone that's thinking, oh, I don't know what to eat anymore, a really interesting question to put to them, or you could put this to yourself, is if I didn't have to worry about my health, my weight or my reputation is in what would other people think if they saw me eating this? What would I choose to eat? And that's an interesting question. Peanut so butter. I, what, was that peanut butter? Peanut butter. <laughs> there you go. And that's potentially what you feel like eating in that moment. 
perfectly nutritious food. Um, occasionally when I, I use that question with people, I get some people that just, they draw complete blanks. And that's usually just because the food that they, what they know they enjoy, they've been taught or conditioned to believe they shouldn't be eating, so they've kind of blocked it out of their repertoire. Um, and, yeah, so it just takes a little bit of time of tuning back into the body and learning how to give yourself permission to eat again. So the, the philosophy, if you like, of intuitive eating is unconditional permission to eat, which means you get to a point where you believe, so once you're eating intuitively, so an intuitive eater believes that they can eat whatever they feel like whenever they feel like it. So there's sort of no, no rules about what you should and shouldn't eat. Now, obviously, if, like I was sort of saying at the beginning, there are exceptions to all of these things. If you have celiac disease, you need to avoid gluten. Um, if you have a peanut allergy, you need to avoid peanuts. Usually there's a fair amount of motivation to do that, though, because most people don't want to die. Um, but unless you have an allergy. That's, I think that's intuition. It's a more primal yeah. state, not wanting to die. And, and also I think intuitive eating would be to feed yourself to continue living and to grow, yeah. right, to preserve yourself. Yeah, and it's, it's about eating in a way that is pleasurable. Like food is meant to be pleasurable. I always say that person who said if it tastes good, it must be bad for you. You should have been shot or hit over the head with a baseball bat. Food is meant to be pleasurable, not just from a taste point of view, but from a social interaction point of view. Which And that's a whole other tangent in terms of what is health. What do we actually need to take care of our health? Our eating, our body, our, our, our body size, I should say, is a tiny, tiny percent of that. As I'm sort of thinking, as you would be aware, the core of well-being is human connection. And what, what I'm seeing in the, the job that I'm in is so many people, they've become so um, disordered with their eating or they're distressed around their eating and their body image. Often I say this kind of... This country, this world has a body image crisis before it has a, I don't even like the word, I'm doing air quotes again, obesity, I try not to use it, but obviously obesity crisis is, is what's often talked about. Um, you know, this country has a crisis of disordered eating, um, body image issues, um, and when people feel really badly about their bodies, that has a huge influence on how they eat. But when people are really struggling with how they're feeding themselves and struggling with how they're feeling about their body, that has a huge impact on their relationships, which is actually much more long-term is going to have a much bigger impact on health than what a person's eating or what their body size is. Right. But if, if someone is in a right now, because right now we've all lived in, in or grown up in this type of society in which we have all this external information, right? So there's no real way that I can get into this machine, like machine that you see at the airport, that it's like an x-ray that would take away all the external information that I've learned from school, from books, from listening to other people, to what my friend says, etc. Since I can't do that. And let's say that I am in a, in my, my, my body state right now is in an unhealthy way in which I've developed some sort of illnesses because of my nutrition or my diet. 
what's the next step for me? Because obviously um, I have all this information. How do I how do I take care of my body at the same time uh, and at the same time um, activate intuitive eating? Yeah, no, excellent question. So these are such big conversations. So I'm just I'm sort of just pausing to think how how is the best sort of entry point in. Um, if someone has a health issue, let's go with diabetes because that's a really common one. Um, there is an assumption that that person has developed diabetes because their diet is poor, and it's still there's there's still a common belief that eating too much sugar causes diabetes. It doesn't. Um, but there's an assumption that someone who gets diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease, um, it's because it's their diet is a key cause or their body weight. So it's there is a um, it, so when people get diagnosed with diabetes, it's not unusual that they've gained weight. But there is actually no one health condition that only people in bigger bodies get. So thin people get diabetes, thin people get heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. We don't blame the weight or the diet often in those people. But so there's, there's so many assumptions around weight and health. And I guess the assumption along with if someone is a higher body weight is that they have, um, they're to blame for that because of how they eat or their lack of exercise, their lifestyle. And it's just usually that's not the case. It's so much more complex than that. But also I'm trying to think, in terms of a health condition where your diet would be the main reason you've developed that health condition, other than if you were not eating any fruit or vegetables and developed scurvy, which is a vitamin C deficiency. So, yes, if you've got a particular vitamin deficiency, that might be due to poor diet. But most of the um, sort of main health issues we see, diet may be a small comp component, but most of them are genetically driven. So the reason that people get diabetes is they have a genetic predisposition to it. Um, the reason that there's a larger, um, there's a correlation, not a causation, a correlation between high body, body weights and diabetes is that diabetes causes weight gain. So the weight gain that someone with, who may experience with diabetes is not, less, is, is for the moment, generally not because of their poor eating habits or their inactivity. Um, weight gain is a symptom of having diabetes, of insulin resistance. Right. And not, pro not processing carbohydrates in the proper way and the body's not doing it. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's way too reductionist, way too simplistic to say if someone develops a health issue that it's because of their diet or their exercise or their body size. Yeah. I think yeah. the body size and weight are really bad parameters as to um, judge people on their health. Like they're awful, I think, because we all have different bone density and we all have different, well, genetics to how we build our own muscle and and even our ethnicity and et cetera. But there is a correlation, as far as I know, which it's not much, but there is a correlation with uh, body fat percentage and weak immune systems that can uh, lead you to have or suffer from different illnesses or be more propensed to them? So that's not something that I'm aware of. So as you pointed out before, humans come in all different shapes and sizes. So there are people, and I, 
it's tricky with the language because even myself, you know, very, you know, experienced in this field is that the language is ever changing in terms of, and this is related to shame um, and it's, I guess the social justice issue, which I'll come back to. So um, there's a fat activism in the world. So there are a lot of people that are reclaiming the word fat. So most of us are very fearful of fat, like we're a deeply fat-phobic culture. Calling someone fat is like the worst thing you could call someone. But it should just be an adjective in the same way that tall, skinny, short. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there are people in fat bodies who are reclaiming that word and will quite quite proudly say they're fat. So there are millions of people in fat bodies who have no health issues. There are millions of people in thin bodies who have health issues. Basically, it's... Um, to quote one GP I chatted with who said, um, health is a lottery ticket. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we, we have some control over our health, but ultimately you can, have, you know, you can be someone who, um, quote, unquote, has the perfect diet on paper, is really, really active and then drops dead of acid attack in their 40s or gets cancer at a fairly young age. Um, you can have someone that just pays no attention, maybe does have a nutritionally poor diet, is not active, smokes, whatever, and lives till they're 90. Um, so yes, we do. We can have some influence, but at the same time, there's a there, there's a large luck factor, if you like, um, involved. But back what you were saying about the immunity, that's not something I'm aware of in terms of having ex, having more body fat than someone else that impacting your immune function. So yeah, I can't necessarily comment on that. What I can say is that fat is blamed for an awful lot of things. It's an easy scapegoat. Um, and shame. So shame is, this is this is a really important conversation. Um, you were saying before in terms of it's, you know, using weight as a parameter is just not good because of lots of physiological reasons, like you said, some people have different bone density, different muscle mass. But probably arguably the more important reason is weight stigma and shame. So when people are made, so this is the majority of the clients I see, they feel so badly about their bodies. And actually you can, you can be any body shape or size to feel badly about your body. And the shame that comes along with that. So if you are actually in a bigger body or a fat body, um, the judgment you get from almost every angle is, is, is such that, yeah, people just, they feel awful about themselves. And then if they do get diagnosed with a health condition, they're sitting there with the doctor and the doctor's like, oh, well, maybe if you tried to lose weight. Now, I should be careful saying this in case there's any doctors listening because I know there's lots of fabulous doctors out there. And also, most doctors want the best for their patients. Um, part of the reason that weight loss is such a widely recommended factor is this is to do with all these assumptions I mentioned before. We've just been conditioned to believe that having extra weight on the body is not a good thing, that losing weight will actually benefit health. So it's just the normal thing that gets recommended. Um, often we don't have the answers for our clients if people are unwell. We, you know, so it's almost like suggesting that people lose weight is kind of like an easy way out, if you like. Um, but yeah, so back on the topic of shame, there is an article got published in the British Medical Journal in, at the end of 2017, which is was brilliant to see because that's a mainstream medical journal. Um, and the mainstream medical model is very weight-centric still. But what this article was about was health-related shame. And it basically said that shame 
is an independent risk factor for health. So it talked about um, three layers of shame. People experience acute shame. So where someone judges you for your size, your shape, you might be in the doctor's office and they, they weigh you and they go, you know, your BMI is this, whatever, whatever. Um, there's chronic shame. The chronic shame can be, be living in a culture where bigger bodies are seen as a bad thing. Like, you know, our culture has this really strong weight bias. The most basic level, thin is good, fat is bad. Thin is more worthy, more attractive, more successful. And fat is all the things that I'm sure your listeners would know that come along with that. So there's chronic shame. If you've got a health condition, there's chronic shame with that, diabetes being a classic one, because there's this idea that, you know, you quote-unquote let yourself go, you brought it upon yourself. There's also another layer of shame. They all, they're intertwined is social stigma. So there's a lot of social stigma about, so that could be body size, that could be health condition, um, but financial status as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those three layers of shame, so it's now been researched and found that they independently impact metabolic risk factors. So what I mean by that is that I'm experiencing the, um, acute shame, chronic shame, social stigma, over time increases your cortisol, stress hormone, increases things like blood sugar, blood pressure, um, cholesterol, they're the sort of some of the key metabolic risk factors, and potentially more so than diet or exercise. As so how, out, do you, how do you measure uh, shame though? Because when you say shame, I think that it, that's just stress, that people are subjecting themselves under stress because... I'd, I'd, how how can you scientifically measure it? You just not just sitting uh, like I have seen thousands and thousands of patients over the years, and just sitting across from them, traditionally in the same room as them at the moment. It's all via Zoom, but you know you just know the shame is there. Um, so yeah, I don't know that it's something you can measure. You start talking to people about it. So I have these conversations with my clients and, you know, some of them start crying, some of them are just nodding, some of them are just like, oh, it's such a relief to hear that, you know, it's not my fault. Um, So, but I think from as, you know, um, from one human to another, we know human, I mean, it's it's, shame is a, one of our emotions. Um, It's not something we talk about much though. We don't tend to, we often don't use the word shame. We, particularly when it's in relation to food or our behaviours, I should say, we tend to use the word guilt. So people say, oh, I'm feeling guilty because I didn't go for that run or I feel guilty because I ate a hamburger. Um, and it's not actually guilt. This is that that feeling you have when you don't do that thing you think you quote unquote should have done is actually shame. So we feel guilt um assuming we're not a sociopath, we feel guilt when we do something bad. So if you know if if you killed someone to get the hamburger or you stole the hamburger off someone or you were supposed to meet a friend in the park for a run and you just didn't show up, you didn't contact them, then there might be a, a sense of um, guilt involved in that because you've done something that's harmed someone else. Um, but so the difference between so guilt is I sort of did something bad or I am bad. And you're not a bad person for eating a hamburger. Shame is, I feel bad. So when you feel bad, and 
you know, I'm sure you can relate to feeling bad over various things. Um, you know, that is shame. Yeah. And I'm sure you can appreciate that someone in a large body would feel, is made to feel bad constantly, time, you know, over and over again. Um, like that they're not doing enough to take care of their health, that they're not, you know, they could be fitter, that they don't look good enough. There's, you know, lots of many things that are tied in with that. Yeah. For example, I, myself, I'm not completely uh, happy with my body. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times, and, and what you're talking about shame, which is something that I think we've all felt with our bodies is, for example, in my case, is comparison with others. You know, and also has to do with you have a certain uh, objective in mind or something that you would like to achieve, but you're not getting it because you and you're trying all these different formulas or you're trying all these different methods um, and you're trying to find something that matches your lifestyle or your philosophies. So I think that's the hardest part. And that's why people in the end feel so... um, feel so much pain in so many ways. So this is and this is where we get into sort of, you know, more richer, deeper conversations around, you know, I was gonna to say to you before when you said, you know, you feel shame about your body. And I was gonna say, you know, congratulations, you're human. It's almost we all do. It it is almost impossible in the world that we live in to feel completely happy with ourselves. And there's lots of different levels for this. There's the social conditioning, as I said, the culture's, the culture's weight bias. But um, capitalism, not anti-capitalist by any means, but, you know, we live in a world where we're, we're, we're just, it's expected of us that we're constantly bettering ourselves. You know, it's like you can never be thin enough, you can never be, you know, your eyelashes can't be long enough, your skins can't be perfect. There's always something you can do to better yourself. And even someone that you might look at and go, wow, they've got, you know, a quote-unquote amazing body and all that, there'll be aspects of themselves that they're not happy about. And this is because we live in a world where it's like we're never meant to be enough. Um, Sort of getting into Brene Brown territory here. I don't know if you've heard of Brene Brown, but she's an amazing shame researcher. But that's, you know, that's another tangent, her work. Um, I was going to say something else and now it's popped out of my head. Oh, okay, so this is values. And this kind of goes back to what you asked me before about, okay, I've been conditioned to think like this and I feel like I've got this health issue that you're saying, how do I how do I sort of let go of what I've been led to believe and practice this intuitive eating? Um, so I guess it's if I've got someone that is um, really struggling with their body weight and they really want to lose weight, I say to all of my clients, it's totally okay to want to lose weight. Well, it's totally okay to be struggling with your body. It makes perfect sense given the world that we live in. But if a person is wanting to explore this intuitive eating, they need to be at a point where they're okay to not actively focus on weight loss. Um, I'm in the, the fortunate position now, I guess, from my work point of view, that most by the time people come to see me, they understand that. Um, occasionally I get people that are when they might be referred by a friend who they didn't quite understand what I did or a GP who didn't know what I did. Um, and they're thinking I'm going to help them lose weight. So what I would spend the session doing with them is exploring, like, what are their values? What are the things that are important for their life? So sometimes a useful question is what I call the magic wand question. So if I waved my magic wand and, you know, five kilos came off you, 10 kilos, whatever, if your body was how you thought you wanted it to be, how would your life be different? What would you do differently? 
And then we start looking at those things. Interestingly, the two most common responses I get to that from both males and females. So I say most of my clients are females, but I had a couple of um, new clients earlier this week who were men. And um, the same two answers, to feel more confident and to fit into clothing, which might sound a little bit superficial, but there's <laughs> um, the importance of being able to fit into clothing. I mean, it's an identity thing. It's a comfort thing. Um, but then, I, then I'd explore that further. I go, okay, well, if you had more, if you had more confidence, if you were able to wear those clothes, how would that enhance your life? What would you do differently? And let's start looking at those things. Um, in terms of changing the thinking, because yeah, most of the people I work with, which is pretty much every well, the world that we live in, we're conditioned to think about food in a certain way. So it's what we are, I refer to it as diet mentality, this idea that there's good and bad foods, um, there's certain things that you should and shouldn't eat. It's, it's about changing your relationship to food. Um, so changing the way that you think about food, which yeah. is getting into neuroplasticity. So um, it's essentially rewiring your brain um, and just changing, you know, recognising old thought patterns, um, learning new different ways to think and this this is a, sort of a key work I do with people is actually more around so it's much more counseling psychology work than food and nutrition yeah that's what I was gonna say I think that you basically do like a psychology session or you're, you're like a psychologist that happens to know nutrition so nutrition counselor there I'm, I'm sort of getting there are a bunch of us so, as I said, non-diet dietitians, or in America, they call themselves the anti-diet dietitians. Um, <laughs> and nutrition counsellor is a term that I think more and more of us are, are using. But I haven't kind of fully latched onto that yet because it's still got nutrition in it. And there's this sense there that I feel like it's making the nutrition more important than it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so... Because the things, and especially during quarantine, I've been like listening to a lot of different things. And personally, I do want to lose uh, body fat. The reason why I want to lose body fat because I've what I've learned is that it's it's linked to uh, longevity, and I want to live for a long time. And it's also um, also my my doctor, my GP, he told me to to lose body fat uh, to 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 be healthier just because of a personal condition, um, because of my genetics and so on. So the, I, for, I am someone that is always wanting to improve, which is, I think it's, it's a great thing. And I think it's a natural thing from a human perspective. Um, and I always like to be challenged as well. So I would, I would restrict myself from certain types of foods that I, that I would tend to love. And I will also like, I love, for example, to do intermittent fasting. I think it's great. It's something that I, I really enjoy doing. And I think it's, but not because I don't, not because I enjoy being hungry, but because I think it's great for my mind. Because I think there's, I can see all the benefits from restricting certain things in my mental discipline or the, or the person that I am. Because I've found, I've seen like a lot of growth doing those things. With intuitive eating, sounds like that's not compatible. <laughs> and this is, so, you know, we're, so, 
if someone asked me, what do you think of intermittent fasting? Um, I would say I wouldn't choose to do it myself. I, it's not something that I recommend my clients do. But if I've got someone that's saying to me, okay, I do this and I love this way of eating and it feels good, doesn't cause me any shame around my body or, or eating, doesn't affect my, my social life with food, my, my social interaction with food, then that's fine. I have no issue with that. You know, as I said, there are a gazillion and one different ways of eating well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm never going to say that doing eating in a particular way is wrong outright, but I guess what I see is for most people, and I, I, I feel quite confident saying most people, um, any pattern of eating that has a level, that has rules to it or a level of rigidity to it um, can't be maintained long term and in the long run causes more damage than good. So I guess the, the, the most of the clientele I see is that they try and restrict food for whatever reason and that restriction, they, they end up overeating that food or feeling like a sense of loss of control around that food at some point. And partly that's because there's a, I guess there's a, often a physiological, so if a person finds themselves in a situation where they're either overeating, they might be overeating at a meal in one sitting or overeating a particular food, a food they've been trying to restrict, there's um, nearly always a physiological drive for that and, and a psychological drive. So the, psych the psychology is it's basic human psychology to want more what you can't have. So when something becomes off, li off limits, it becomes more desirable. Um, if you think of the forbidden fruit effect, um, a, a favourite quote of mine is, uh, scarcity makes us anxious and abundance allows us to feel calm. Uh, so that's a quote I've used for a long time and I just, it was, you know, at the beginning of this year or in March and toilet paper was scarce, everybody could really relate to that. <laughs> so when something is off limits, it's more desirable. And then when you have that food, you actually get a great, you get a heightened dopamine reward response. Yeah, it's so more pleasurable. Yeah. It's more pleasurable, yes. So when there was a toilet paper shortage and then all of a sudden there was toilet paper, we were like so excited by getting toilet paper, which of course doesn't ordinarily happen. And with food, that's actually even greater because we need food on a daily basis to survive. So um, the, what drives people at some point to overeat a food is um, either the psychology of having restricted it, so it's actually more rewarding to have it, um, but also often people are undereating. Now, you may not be doing this if you're in, in with what you're doing, but most people in the pursuit of weight loss will end up eating less, will end up under-eating. They're taking in less calories than what they actually need. Um, and then they will end up overeating. And the best way to explain this is with a few little analogies. Um, the concept of willpower or even discipline with food is actually quite misplaced. So we have some basic biological drives that we can't override. We need to eat, we need calories from food, we need to breathe and we need to sleep. If I said to you now, Pablo, I want you to hold your breath for 10 minutes. You just look at me. I'll probably be able to do it for like three, four minutes, but right now for like two. Perfect. But you can't do it for 10 minutes. Now, even if I say, come on, just use willpower, you know you can't do that. If I said, I want you to stay awake for a week, again, you know, you can't, we don't expect people to do that. But because of this diet culture we live in and this, this idea that we should all be trying to lose weight or not to have, have too much weight on us, 
everything in our world kind of validates restricting food. So we're duped into believing that that's what we should be doing. But for most people, at some point, they'll end up overeating. So if we deprived you of oxygen for, let's say, do you say you could hold your breath for three to four minutes? I can't even hold mine for a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. With, with proper training, humans can hold their breath for three to four minutes, sometimes even more. But uh, naturally, like one and a half, two minutes. Okay. So let's say, we, let, let's say we deprived you of oxygen for two minutes. Yeah. But then we let you breathe just before you perish. Are you going to breathe normally or are you going to be gasping for air? Well, it depends. <laughs> because, and, and this is the thing as well, that I'm, I'm super for, I, I think that deprivating yourself from things is beneficial as well. I don't think that doing it the whole time is, is the, the ideal, but I think that there are things that you can only learn by doing these things. But most people, you might be an exception, Pablo, but most people, if you deprive them of oxygen to the point they're about to perish and you let them breathe, they're going to be gasping for air. Oh, yeah, me too, me too, yes, yes. And sleep. If we somehow manage to find a way to keep you awake for a week, are you going to have a normal night's sleep after that? Or you're going to, quote-unquote, binge on sleep? I don't actually like the term binge when it comes to food um, because yeah. if, if, if you physiologically haven't had enough calories a bit like the gasping for air, the normal response when there is more food around you is you're going to overeat. And that is not a lack of willpower or self-control. I always like to say yeah. my that if you if you find it difficult to resist food when you're hungry, that's not a lack of willpower or self-control. That is called being a successful human. Yeah. You might have found yourself on a path where you did the fasting. And I know there are some some people who, who enjoy that fasting. Um but I think the majority of people, they end up, basically, let me put it this way. If a person tries a particular form of eating, but they end up in a cycle of restriction followed by overeating or, so the quote-unquote, binging, rather than, I like the term feast because actually what people are doing is feasting. Mm. Um, you know, and once upon a time we were feast or famine. That's a whole other conversation that we get into, but we do have three hours. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, now I've lost my train of thought again, which is, yeah, so if someone is trying a particular pattern of eating but they're finding themselves, they end up in a cycle of restriction and followed by overeating, they're starting to think about food a whole lot, like they're yeah. becoming preoccupied with thoughts about food, which interestingly, so when you, if a person is under eating, um, what happens to the human body when we're not eating enough is our brain releases a chemical to make us think about food more. Food will look, look better, smell better, taste better. Um, and we will we will crave carbohydrate because carbohydrate is broken down into glucose, and glucose is the brain's number one fuel source. Um, so as you know, when people are finding themselves craving sugar, craving sweets, craving carbs, um, it's often because they're not eating enough, and it's not because carbs are addictive. Um, it's actually just because they're not eating enough. Um, so that's that. That so a lot of people have a strong physiological drive to need to eat more. So um, that is. Sorry, you can go on. I was going to say, but if you're doing so, the, the intermittent fasting that you're, you're doing where you notice that you're hungrier for a period, if that doesn't affect you, if that's not messing with your psychology around food, if it's not meaning that you're finding yourself then overeating, feasting at another stage, 
then that's fine. You guys said it's not yeah. interfering with um, just living the life that you want to live, living a life yeah. according to your values. Then, yeah, as I said, I have no issue with that. Yeah. But a lot of people out there uh, end up really with a really um, feeling really distressed, anxious around their food, they're eating their bodies. And so the, I guess the intuitive eating is a way to get out of that where, um, and it's, so it's, it's not a weight loss approach, but it's not anti-weight loss. So if a yeah. person does lose weight, it's a side effect of being more in tune with the appetite. So if you've got someone that's um, just not really paying attention to their appetite, so they might be doing lots of eating when they're not hungry, which is easy to do in this world because we have lots of food, um, then, and they might be eating, they might not really be recognising when they're full, so they're eating more than they need on a regular basis. As people really tune back into their appetite cues um, and as they give themselves permission to eat, so you're much less likely to binge um, or go nuts for food when it's available all the time. That's back to the scarcity makes us anxious, abundance allows us to What people find, it's not unusual um, that there's a bit of a flood, for some people, a bit of a floodgates open effect when they first start intuitive eating. If they've been really restricted, they might find themselves eating lots of the stuff they were restricting. So it's really important that they're working with someone that's talking them through that and saying, well, this is part of the process. The pattern that your eating takes on when you're learning to eat intuitively is usually not how your eating will look once you are eating intuitively. Um, but there needs to be this permission to eat to get to the point where you're able to make that decision. Oh, I can have it if I want it, but do I feel like it right now? And then as a person is getting back in tune with their appetite, they might find that the overeating stops. They're just doing less, they're eating less overall because they're more aware of their appetite. And then, yes, it's possible there could be a change in body fat percentage or weight um, as a result of that. It's just that that needs to be seen as a total side effect as opposed to the goal. Yeah. I, th I feel like uh, intuitive eating is all about balancing the way you approach food. So from a psychological point of view, if all of us exercise intuitive eating, intuitive eating would not be a conversation. It would not be a concept. It would just be eating, you know? Exactly. So well, yeah. the, what, what I, I want to ask too is um, we, we do get addicted to things, yeah? We get addicted to certain chemicals and chemical reactions in our bodies and how they make us feel and the hormones they produce and how, and then physically we, we do have certain um, uh, dependencies, we could say, right? So for example, when you were saying before that um, the, 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 the brain sometimes is um, craving carbohydrates and glucose and then we get into this a cycle of thinking of, of carbohydrates, of pasta, of candy and chocolate and, and sugars. Um, that's that's one thing when we need it. But for example, if a person has excess body fat, they don't really need that energy. And and is it possible with the intuitive uh, eating approach that that person is actually addicted to sugar? So uh, so the first to, to the first point, no, wrong. Um, People can be have um, a high percentage of body fat and still be malnourished, still not be eating enough. So most people understand anorexia nervosa to be the condition where people are in um, almost emaciated bodies, so too thin bodies. There is a growing number of people with anorexia, anorexia nervosa, in 
um, larger bodies in what we might call a straight size body, so a normal size body or a fat body. So a person can be starving at any size. Yeah. Equally, um, so uh, the, a lot of the people that come to see me, the reason that they've got more body fat on them now than they did when they were in their 20s or 30s or, yeah, is actually through dieting. So dieting is a better predictor. So dieting, to, I'm going to say dieting, dieting has kind of become a bit uncool. So I think when you say dieting, it's, it has to do with uh, calorie counting and... So any, any change to your diet where the calories are controlled to lose weight is dieting. People don't like to use the term dieting anymore. It's become a bit untrendy. But that's the, the modern definition of dieting is if you are controlling your food to change your body shape or size in some way. So, um, and if a person is, is dieting or taking in less food than what they need, then they often lose weight initially. Um, at some point, pretty much everyone regains it. And that's not, you know, I don't think that's going to be news to any of your listeners that almost everybody who loses weight on a diet or whatever program they do regains the weight at some point. What might be news to your listeners is that a lot of people end up heavier. So the diet cycle itself, the weight loss cycle, um, actually leads to weight gain in the long term. And I don't know, do you want me to go into a bit of the physiology as to why that happens? That's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So basically, if you are actively pursuing weight loss, then typically that means you will have reduced your calories. And what that does is it puts the body into famine mode. Like, you know you're not in a famine, but you're, the primitive brainstem part of your brain doesn't know that. All it knows, all your biology knows is there's not enough food energy. Be a bit yeah. like if you didn't have enough air to breathe, you're panicking like, oh, God, I need more air. So, um, and what happens is when the body goes into famine mode, there's a couple of mechanisms that kick into place. So one of them, like the one that most people have heard of or are familiar with, is the metabolism slowing down. Now, this diet culture we live in likes us to, us to believe that a slow metabolism is a bad thing. If your metabolism, if you have a slower metabolism, it actually means you're a more efficient human. You don't need to eat as much as the next person who are more efficient, which often confuses people. So I use lots of car analogies. If you had two cars and one of them cost you $100 to drive around for the week and the other one only cost $50 to drive around to do exactly the same amount of driving, which is the better car? The $50 one. Yeah, the one that doesn't need as much fuel. So if you don't need to eat as much as your friend, then you are actually more efficient. That's one change, the metabolism slowing down. Um, another change is the body gets more efficient at storing fat when there is more food. So it upregulates an enzyme so that when you end up out to dinner on holidays, whatever, you're eating more, and your body doesn't need as much of that as that fuel aids exactly. metabolism lower. But also your, your body is madly storing more of that away as fat. So as people go through the diet cycle, it's not unusual that their body shape changes. Um, so, so I see a lot of women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they've, through dieting, they're 5 to 20 to 30 kilos heavier than they were in their 20s. And they're, they're much rounder. They put on a lot of weight around the middle. Um, another change that happens is appetite hormones getting nested. So that beautiful appetite achievement that we're born with, so no one needs to teach a child what hunger and fullness is, they just automatically know. The more you diet, the more confused, the bl more blunted those hormones get. And a nice way to think about this is the feast or famine that I touched on before. So we, once upon a time, were hunter-gatherers, we were feast or famine. 
Um, and I'd be interested to hear your experience of this. So when you're fasting and you in, initially you feel hungrier, um, but I think the way that I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert on intermittent fasting by any means. But if you, you know, as soon as you start feeling quite hungry, it's difficult to concentrate. So if you continually, if you were, we were in a famine environment and we had five days, not much food, if we felt as intensely hungry that whole time, it would be hard to function or get anything done. So what actually happens for most people after two or three days is that initial increase in appetite drops off. So that means that we can get by for longer. And that's sort of what allows people to diet for longer, if you like, without just constantly feeling hungry. The kind of hunger cue gets dulled down. Equally, the fullness hormone, the leptin hormone, can get um, gets blunted as well. I'll use the, the, cave, the cave person analogy where back when we were cave people, um, we might have gone for a period with not much food. Eventually the men went out and did their hunting and came back with a wild beast. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of food to eat in a short space of time. And no refrigeration back then either, so we had to eat all the food. Um, that ability to feast, so what people, what often gets referred to as binging in today's world, that ability to feast comes about because your brain doesn't re release leptin as readily, the fullness hormone. So for people who, who are restrict, not eating enough during the day, um, or just generally not eating enough, and then they find themselves overeating in the evening or on the weekend, which is one of the most common presentations I see, um, the ability to eat a lot in one sitting is it's not to do with being glutton or having no self-control. It's because your body's enabling you to do that by not letting you know that you're full as quickly as if you were eating enough at regular intervals. Yeah. So, so yeah, and over time, so the more people go through that diet cycle, the just the their appetite hormones become more and more blunted to the point that they're never quite sure when they're hungry or when they're full. The good news is there that no matter how messed up someone's appetite cues are, and eating disorders probably can damage them the most, you can get that you can get that achievement back again. Um, but the last change that happens when we go into famine mode, and I refer to this one as the most profound change, because it's the one that people notice. It's the one, it's the one that causes the psychological distress. Most people don't notice their metabolism slowing down or their body increasing in enzyme to store more fat. Or they don't even necessarily notice their appetite hormones being blunted because it's such a gradual thing. Um, but what people do notice is their brain going nuts for food. So what I mentioned before about when you're under eating, your brain releases a chemical um, to make you think about food. So as I said, the food looks better, smells better, tastes better. So it becomes, it's like your food-seeking behaviours really, really ramp up. Um, so that's the, and I'm trying to think what, because you asked, there were two points to what you said before. There's, I'll come on to the addiction in a moment. Ah, oh, okay, yeah. So one of them was the, you know, if you've got extra body fat on you, should, maybe you don't need that food energy. So yes, yes hopefully I've debunked that one. So yes, you can be starving at any, any size, um, particularly if you put on weight through either a health condition. Um, so PCOS is another one. So women experience that where um, when they develop PCOS, they also insulin resistance is a common condition that comes with that, um, and that causes the body to put on weight. So, according to your to your expertise, we do we do we add body fat if we eat too much carbs? We can add body fat if we eat too much of anything, not just carbohydrate. So, if you eat too much, if, too much. 
fruits and vegetables. If you're consistently taking in more food energy than what you need, then yes, your body will store more. Yeah. So is it so, good to, to, to eat more body and more, more energy than what we need? Um, I guess the short answer to that is is no, but it's um, depends on why a person's doing it. So and I guess what intuitive eating about is about is learning what your body's needs are. So when you are learning when you're eating intuitively, you're eating the amount of food that your body needs. So arguably you could say the body is the best calorie counter going around. Your body knows, well, if you're listening to those appetite cues, you'll be getting the amount of calories you need. Um, on the sugar addiction topic, so this is, um, I can email it through to you if you like. I'm trying to think what the article is called, um, but I've got it saved on my computer, which has looked at all the science behind sugar addiction and said that there is no evidence yet for being addicted to sugar. So the pathways, yes, we can get addicted to alcohol, we can get addicted to cocaine. Um, the pathways are quite different. Um, awesome yeah so, I want to read that I would love to <laughs> yeah so what a lot of the sugar addiction studies haven't controlled for is well, if they're with humans it's restrained eaters and unrestrained eaters um, that people who are restricting themselves or dieting um, when they're when in the study when they're given the food they'll often overeat it like in normal life whereas people who are unrestrained eaters who haven't dieted they might eat, you know, when they're given a sample of food to eat in the study, they just eat what they need. Um, so they haven't controlled for that. With the, the it's mainly rat studies they've done with the um, with sugar addiction, and the difference was whether rats were intermittently fasted or not. So rats that were fed ad lib, so they had a constant supply of food, they ate more sugar. They put sugar in, in the food. They ate more sugar simply because the sugar was in the food. So that's the same for the human food supply. So I'm not going to argue that our food supply makes it too easy to overeat certain foods. Yeah. Um, it does. So, um, so yes, these the, the rats, when they were fed ad lib, did eat more sugar simply because the sugar was there. But the rats that were intermittently fasted, so there were 12 hours no food, 12 hours food, they went nuts for the sugar. So they're given food with sugar and food without it. Yeah, I can't remember exactly. But they, essentially the, the ones that were restricted for a period and then given food actually ate more sugar than the ones that were just fed freely. So that's, yeah, it's just sort of an interesting comment on um, which sort of matches, as I said, what we see in the human world. People who are trying to control their eating end up feeling like they're out of control. People who are just giving themselves permission to eat you know, without the restriction, but with a sense of attunement to how the body feels, not just eating a block of chocolate because it's there. They're choosing to eat the chocolate because they feel like it in that moment. They eat it in a way that feels good. Most people, if you eat an entire block of chocolate, will recognise that you feel a bit sickly. So um, I should say most people who have good appetite awareness or intuitive eaters it is possible as a non-intuitive eater, someone who's got a bit messed up with their eating, to eat an entire block of chocolate and not feel sick from it. Yeah. Because, for example, I think I have, I, I like to know a lot of stuff or learn a lot of stuff, and then I learn too many things, and it's obviously confusing, I think, for everyone. So, for example, I feel sometimes that like late at night at 11 at night, I feel like having a big margarita pizza, super cheesy, yeah. you know? But I don't because 
one of the reasons is because what I I know is that it's bad for me. Uh, not and it's because I don't wanna uh, I don't wanna have extra body fat that I don't need that my body doesn't need in order to to just sustain so myself. If I said to so you, how do I change? How do I change that mindset? Uh, make an appointment and come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> um, Done. It, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you're hungry, so this is kind of gets into the the, the, the good food, bad food conversation. If I said to you that there's actually no one food that nutritionally is bad for you, including a really cheesy margarita pizza, what would you say? I would I would uh, question that claim. Okay. Yeah. Can I? Can, okay. So, so I, this is a question I ask pretty much all my clients in the first session, and I use I use this to. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a scenario now to help put a different perspective on nutrition to think about it differently. Yes, so please in, put me put me on the spotlight. Just put just uh, I'm here to 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 let my ignorance flourish and mm -hmm. then die. Yeah. So, so I, I'm here to learn. Just put, me, just put me on the spot. This is an extreme scenario, but that will help you remember it. But diet culture is extreme. This idea that sugar is toxic is not completely inaccurate. It's a very extreme way of thinking about food. Um, I want you to imagine that you're stranded in the desert for six weeks and all you have to eat is that cheesy margarita pizza. Would it be bad for you? No, I would have a great time. <laughs> yeah, would it be bad for you nutritionally? Oh, would it be bad for me nutritionally? Uh, well, it's it's so contextualized. So in that context, no. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? Because I would be uh, having some carbohydrates from the dough, and some protein from the from the uh, cheese, and, uh, and had some and fats as well. So that margarita pizza is giving the, the three most vital nutrients, food nutrients that we need to sustain us, carbohydrate, fat, and protein. Your margarita pizza is giving you a good, a good balance of those three nutrients. There's also a range of vitamins and minerals in there with the pizza dough and the cheese and the, and the tomato sauce. Um, now, often the most common examples I get when I use this with clients, because like, I, I say, give me a food that you really enjoy that you think is bad for you. Um, hot chips and chocolate are the two most common ones I get. And with chocolates, because with margarita pizza, I'd actually have to get my nutritional program out in the sense, so I often use vitamin C as the, deficient, the first deficiency that would arise. But tomatoes are a good source of vitamin C, but vitamin C get, does get destroyed on cooking. So I'm not actually entirely sure how much vitamin C is in a margarita pizza. Let's just assume that there's not much. So, but after six weeks, you may well have developed scurvy, which is the vitamin yep. C deficiency. So I'm going to take you out of the desert now. Um, you've got free access to food, but I'm going to say you've had like for the next six weeks, all I want you to eat is margarita pizza, breakfast, lunch, dinner, nothing else. But and cheesy I'm, back, I'm back home? You're back home, yeah. I'm back home. So you, you've got free access to other food, but I'm saying to you as your dietitian, all I want you to eat is cheesy margarita pizza, nothing yep. else. Well before you start to develop scurvy, or any other sort of nutritional deficiency, what do you think might happen? Um, I don't know. I would probably lose a lot of weight. 
interesting that you say that. I actually have people say they put on weight, and I say, well, so I'd say before you put on weight, but actually you wouldn't necessarily put on weight. It depends on how much you're eating. So, and you wouldn't necessarily lose weight because it depends on how much pizza you're eating. Let's say you're eating enough food energy, so you're eating what your body needs in pizza. Yeah. Um, but even, so even before there would be any change to your body shape or size, there'd be something else that would probably happen in the first few days. Imagine yourself eating cheesy margarita pizza for breakfast, lunch, dinner, nothing else but cheesy margarita pizza. Day I'm in, day I'm very happy with that. I'm very happy with that scenario. Okay. So every so often I'd, I'd go, I'd use this, I don't know, have a new patients I'd see a week, five to 10 new patients a week. And I often I'd go through this example and you might be <laughs> in my six years of doing this particular work, the third or fourth person now that said that. <laughs> Most people straight away are like, oh my God, I'd get sick of it and I'd want something else. Oh, why? <laughs> no, no, how are you going to get sick of margarita pizza? <laughs> So what I, I'm always curious as to as to what's going on when people say that and where my mind is going now, which, of course, I'm biased for the work I do, where my mind is going is because Pablo is restricting the pizza, he's like, oh, my God, that's all I want to eat at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm fairly certain that after, maybe it might take you a little bit longer, it might take a week or two, but you would get to the point where you're like, oh, my God, I want to eat something else. Yeah. Yeah. So the point I'm trying to make there is that um, we, our body, the body does naturally crave a variety of food. If you let yourself eat freely, if you don't put restrictions on things, you're not just going to want to eat all the things you think you quote unquote shouldn't be eating. Now, no, that's true. That's uh, true. I've, sorry to interrupt, but I've I've been mainly vegetarian for almost two years now. Yeah. And uh, there are times when my body asks for for uh, fish, for example, yeah. or for chicken. Yeah, I do I do feel that, yeah. Okay, so just to finish off my little desert scenario, I'm gonna, I'm popping you back in the desert again. And yeah. this time, what you've got to eat is broccoli. Yeah. Which would you be better off with, the broccoli or the margarita pizza? Well, so what was that? So I've popped you back in the desert again. You've got, yeah. let's say, you know, six weeks, two months to survive out there. And this time, all you've got to eat is broccoli. Yeah. Do you think you'd be better off with broccoli or cheesy margarita pizza? Uh, I would probably survive better with margarita pizza. I would need to eat a lot of broccoli to survive in the desert. Yeah, and you may not survive. So yeah, probably why, not. Why would, the, why would the pizza help you survive better? Or just help in you the short term, In the short term, it would give me enough calories and it's and it also has a more diverse uh nutritional nutritional content thank you this is a, a, i love having this conversation with people because i see people hesitate when i say it. they're like okay the, the pizza or the chocolate or the chips sort of would be better than the broccoli and why and i people i feel like people want to say because it's got more or so many people start to say you know, the pizza's got more and then they stop themselves because this idea that pizza could have more nutritional variety than a vegetable um, or just more nutrition in it. Of course, if you think about it, it makes sense. But diet culture has is very black and white in its thinking. Yeah. So we yeah. live in this very good, bad food dichotomy now. So it's either healthy or it's unhealthy. It's good or it's bad. It's fattening or it's unfattening. And it's nothing in nutrition is black and white. So part of this brain rewiring work is uh, is actually starting to starting to recognise that. So 
an analogy I use people because I, I talk about brain rewiring, but I feel like that's a term that gets thrown around a little bit loosely. Um, so I give people this analogy. Um, so I'm full of analogies as well as quotes <laughs> as to an, a neat way to think about rewiring your brain. So for your listeners who don't live in Melbourne, just um, excuse me. Think think of think of a major highway wherever you are. So in Melbourne, it's the Monash Freeway analogy, which is so the thoughts you have around food, whether they're diet thoughts, good bad food thoughts, um, the thoughts you have around your body, bad body thoughts, negative self talk, is like the Monash Freeway of thoughts. It's the heavy persistent traffic that's always there. So what we know about neuroplasticity or the way that we can change our brain is the first thing is awareness, practicing awareness. So the, when you, as you start acknowledging or noticing an unhelpful thought, it's like you're stopping a car on the freeway. So the first step is becoming aware of what thoughts you're having that perhaps aren't particularly helpful and starting to challenge those. So yep. acknowledging the thought is stopping the car on the freeway. Then having a different, so having something different you can say to yourself. So I use a, um, a mantra with people where I say, um, get them to practice so whenever their mind is questioning whether or not they should eat something um is to say i can have it if i want it but do i feel like it right now so you that thought is like taking the car off the monash freeway and you're putting it on a new on a back road taking it off the freeway which is activating a, a different neural pathway and repetition is what causes those new neural pathways to strengthen so each time you're able to notice that unhelpful thought challenge that thought you are firing different pathways in your brain yeah definitely yeah and then eventually you know in time the monash freeway of unhelpful thoughts starts to fade um and these new ways of thinking become stronger become the default way of thinking yeah yeah i believe so. in that and that's why i restrict myself from things to, to create new patterns for example that's that's what works for me and like for example with intermittent fasting uh, i feel super energetic when I do it I have more energy which is it's a really nice paradox I, because I don't know they say that um your you also get adrenaline activated uh like your your body goes into starvation mode and like trying to in survival mode my mind is clear I can I can be more focused um so I don't know <laughs> but that's that's my experience if, if that's your experience and that's what works for you then that's totally fine. You know, one of the things I like to say, because in a sense, intuitive eating is not a way of eating. <laughs> it kind of, it sounds like it is, because I said there's a gazillion. It's a philosophy. I totally, it's a philosophy, because I understand that people are going, well, you're saying that people should eat intuitively. Isn't that just another way? Intuitive eating is actually less about what you're eating, how much you're eating. It's your, it's about your awareness of your eating. Yeah. So you can be intuitive eater and do intermittent fasting. So it's the ability to be aware of how you're feeling, um, your appetite cues, what feels right for your body. Yeah. So it's about learning to be the expert of your body and what works best for you. It's and like yoga even, for for food. It's like <laughs> with yoga, you just figure, you just learn. Oh, okay. So if I do this type of stretch, this happens on this tenses in this part of my body, and then you become more in tune with your body. It's great. I like that. You're angry for food. Maybe that can be the title of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Um, so I guess the only thing I would sort of leave you with is to say that because um, how you're are you in your late 20s, you don't mind me. How what is it? How, how old? I think you're in your late 20s. Aren't you? I'm 29. 
I'm turning so 29. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think you were about 26 when I met you, so there. <laughs> um, so at some point, you may not, but at some point your life might become very different um, where you might have a completely different career, job, you might start a family, and it's be looking at is your life changes, the way in which you're eating, is it flexible enough to be able to, to, to go with that? Um, and maybe it will be and maybe it isn't. But I guess that's what a lot of people, when they're following more specific patterns of eating, they end up going overseas on holiday, um, which I don't think any of us are going to be doing in the short term, but <laughs> at some point we will. Or they end up starting a family, they end up in a different job, they move into state, they move overseas. And then the, the one of the things I love about intuitive eating, and maybe this is a nice note to finish on, is um, one of the things I love about it is you can take it with you anywhere. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter whether you're on holidays. You know, um, it, it is something that can be very flexible and bend with your needs. It's true. It's true. I, I like I like the the balance about it. I, th I like everything with balance in the end. Yeah. And that, that's why, um, yeah, that's why I thought it was like yoga for, like <laughs> yoga of food. Because I think it's 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 so personal too, and it's it's so it, it's so much about your own perception about your own self, what you want about yourself, and 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 I think it works more with that than okay you are deficient on vitamin D three, you know or uh, something else or this type of enzyme. So I, I think that's that's that actually makes a lot of sense. I think that the biggest challenge is to, yeah, reprogram your mind and 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 uh, choose to choose not to pay attention to the knowledge you already have. It's really hard to to uh, ignore things that you identify as truth. Absolutely, called cognitive dissonance. Coming okay. to distance, yes. Yes, yes. Sitting with two conflicting thoughts that and it can feel quite uncomfortable. Um, so it, that, that, that was me, and that was me the first forty minutes of our chat. Yeah. I was like, "What?" Well, but I have all this information in my head, and and this specialist is saying this other thing. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I like to see my role is is giving people the the a different way of thinking about things and and explanations behind that so it's not just stuff that i'm pulling out of thin air and if it resonates with you and this is what i find even someone who is has no idea what i do um i know you have a little bit of a sense of what i do but it's you can see how when i first meet someone they ask me what i do to explain it all takes you know we've been almost an hour and a half and there's still so much you know more i could say um but I guess another part, so it's all about challenging, challenging beliefs, things that we've been, that we've been taught. Um, health is another interesting conversation as well, is what do we mean by health? Yeah. So, so the way I might start this conversation with someone is to say there are broadly four key aspects to health. So we have physical health. We have mental, emotional health. We have social health. And spiritual health. So the spiritual health would be um, you have a religion um, or identify as being a very spiritual person, 
or it more just what 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 is meaningful meaningful to you in life? What are your values? That's sort of what we mean by that. Um, so the world that we live in has become very focused on physical health. Yeah. Usually detriment of those other three aspects of health. So you may have an enzyme deficiency. You may have a particular nutrient deficiency. You may have high cholesterol. If the pursuit of trying to correct that is taking away from your mental, emotional health, your social health and your spiritual health, then is it actually improving your health? Mm. I, do, I do think there is uh, a lot of sense, though, to focus on the physical health because uh, as far as we know it, we are in this physical world and we don't have proof that there's anything else. So when if, if we don't focus or over-focus sometimes on our physical health, then we cannot, if we die, we can't really focus on our mental health or spiritual health or anything else, you know? So, so I think that there's... That idea that if you don't, if you, if you didn't pursue your physical health as intensely, would it actually lead you to die earlier? You know, there's an assumption that that might be the case, but as I said, you can have someone who is doing everything "quote unquote" right and then gets mm -hmm. cancer at a young age, or you know, has a heart attack at a young age. Um, I was just sometimes when I have this health conversation, I I say, let's say we had um, a magic pill that we got you to take. You, you no, know, if you take this pill, you've got the choice to take it. So I'm getting 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 a bit matrix here. You, you've got the choice to take a pill. Now this pill is going to give you perfect physical health yeah so you can live to your 200 100 no one's lived that long so it's going to it's going to mean your your physical health is going to be perfect forever yeah um, but in order to take that pill you are uh, you go have need to go off and live on a desert island on your own um for the rest of your life yeah so how useful would that amazing physical health be in this extreme case, it would not be useful. I don't think I don't think life makes sense without the sense of community and 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 connectivity. Yeah, with other people. Yeah, and that's I guess so. I guess the point that I'm trying to make there is that what happens is people get so caught up and focused on their physical health, and then they yeah they definitely yeah. I think that, well, obviously there has to be a balance. Yeah, that's that's what health is in the end. It's just balance of of. Yeah. Uh, of who you are and and the vessel that you're in. And a really key thing on that note, so I'm going to give you another quote now, um, and that is that we all bounce around on the spectrum of health. Health is not a destination that we reach. Mm. But I think a lot of us are kind of fall into that trap of thinking, oh, once I do this, do this, then, then I'll be healthy. And it's like this, you, this destination that you reach and you stay there. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we all bounce around on this on a, on a spectrum of health throughout our lives. So. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it 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 would be the like in anything, it's that you become a healthy person, but in your mind, that mm -hmm. you ask yourself, what would a healthy person do? But when you do that, as well, you need to have a good uh, definition of what a healthy person or who a healthy person is. Because a lot of people think that a healthy person is just someone that eats the right amount of or cups of vegetables a day and a certain, uh, certain grams of carbohydrates and protein and, and natural fats. 
that yeah so there uh, you may may or may not be aware there is a a new eating disorder um in the population which is in the process of being classified to be an official eating disorder like bulimia anorexia binge eating disorder um it's called orthorexia so orthorexia is the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating um, where so someone with orthorexia often people will get lots of external validation so because they're always eating their quote-unquote right foods um, they might you know and they might look the part in the sense that they're you know their their, their appearance um, so from a outward point of view it appears that they're doing all the things that they should be doing but inwardly they are struggling emotionally um, with how they feel, with how they feel about themselves, but also, so it's not unusual, and you don't even need orthorexia to be get to the point where you actually stop social. Well, you you don't go to a party or you don't catch up with friends because you're worried that you can't control the food. You're worried maybe that you're going to eat that cheesy margarita pizza. Now, if you're not like that, if you so this is where flexibility. So you mentioned, um, I can't remember who it was. Uh, I think it was. I think it's a, it was a geriatrician I heard talking on the radio, and he was sort of saying, you know, the two key important things to life or long life are you need to have flexibility and balance, and not flexibility <laughs> than being able to do the splits. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be handy too. But flexibility, as in in your um, way of being in the world. So if Pablo does his intermittent fasting and feels really good. But then when his dancing friends want to catch up for cheesy margarita pizza, he's like, yeah, right on, even if it's in your fasting time, then that's being flexible. Yeah. And I would argue that's healthy. That's not breaking your the rules or doing what you, you know, quote, unquote, shouldn't do. Yeah. So that's, that's allowing, affording you the flexibility and balance, which is so important to health. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um. Yeah, I've, I've definitely been challenged. I knew I was going to be challenged. I like it. And uh, I, I actually feel uh, more relaxed about my approach of doing things or like how I approach food. But I definitely want to wanna have a chat with you later about, yeah, certain things if possible. Um, I, I forgot to ask you at the beginning. What are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? I should have known yes. you were going to ask this question. That's so, so, that's so important. <laughs> that's it's very important. Uh, um, I think I'm, I'm thankful for um, having a level of health. And I'm thankful for being born into a country um, and a, an economic circumstance where I've been able to do the things that I want to do. Like I live in a safe country, um, you know, yeah, all the things that I've wanted to pursue in life, I've had the means to be able to do that. So I'm grateful um, for the the situation that I was born in, into, I guess. And then, as a, you know, as I said, that I have, you know, relatively good health um, and that I'm thankful for. And I can enjoy life and dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you miss it? I miss it so much. I'm doing lots of classes online. But it's not the same. 
family and Raiders podcast. Um, I was, uh, not that I was necessarily apprehensive. I was kind of disappointed. I, I'm just going to do it because that there was no alternative but to do it online. And I discovered really quickly that it's fine. You just adapt. Um, and obviously the social dancing is not there. Yeah. Uh, so the way I'm looking at the social dancing is when I first started doing it three years ago, like it was, you know, it was like falling in love again. It was like the most amazing thing. And I was still loving social dancing up until we got cut off in March. Um, but I guess it had lost some of that shininess. So when we go back, whatever that may be, I'm hoping it'll be all shiny and new again. And I'm looking I think that you're probably wearing like week two of margarita, margarita pizza eating. <laughs> just to stop eating it so then you can enjoy it again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, when, when all this is over, we're going to go out for a glass of wine and a cheesy margarita pizza. Done. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, hey, Zoe, if you yeah. could go, if I were to build during quarantine a time machine mm-hmm. and you could use it, to go and visit your 19-year-old self, what would you tell her? Mm. You have 10 minutes with, with 19-year-old Zoe. What, would you, what, what conversation would you have? Listen, listen to other people and um, you know, open up your mind. I, I kind of actually did this when I was 20. I almost didn't, but it was... So I went on an overseas trip um, and I was a bit a bit of a control freak, kind of stuck in my ways. Well, not stuck in my ways. I can, how stuck in your ways can you be when you're 20? But, you know, life, things had to be a certain way. And then I ended up with this group of people that I met in Thailand and they wanted to do all this travelling and I freaked out and went, oh, my God, I'm going to get Japanese encephalitis and have the Lonely Planet Guide out and looking up all the vaccinations I hadn't had. Unfortunately, the partner I was with at the time, can you know, just said, you know, you don't have to control everything. It's okay, go with it. And I did. And that, I have to say, people say, you do go on that, that trip that changes your life. So what I learned from that was just opening up to other experiences, not not having to be in control all the time. So not that I don't trust other people, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, really, really, you know, really listen to other people and and try different things. Yeah, you don't have to be... Um, yeah, let's experiment more, you know. Oh, but, nice. <laughs> That's a new one. That's a new one. I like it. Thank you. Um, if uh, people want to get in touch with um, uh, intuitive eating, the moderation movement with you to uh, book an appointment with you or anything, how can they contact you? So my business is called Love What You Eat. Um, so if you just Google love what you eat um, or just Google my name, Zoe Nicholson, because um, I've been around for a while. I've got um, like 50 Google pages. <laughs> so it's pretty easy to find on the internet. Um, so you can book, you can do an inquiry through my website. You can just send me a text message. The number's on there. Um, I have social media, my love what you eat platform, so Facebook, Instagram, and then moderation movement that you mentioned, which is also Facebook and Instagram. So the moderation movement I run with a counsellor, Jody Arnott, um, and friend. Um, and we started that to sort of um, as a way to combat all the extremism that was happening in around food and exercise, and which was particularly at the time driven by Pete Evans and 
um, that was 2014 when his paleo, he was getting on his soapbox about paleo and Sarah Wilson and the I Quit Sugar movement. Um, yes, so that's how people can find me. So I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for the time and the conversation uh, about um, yeah, intuitive eating and also being patient with my ignorance and also my questions. <laughs> Thank you for asking such um, clever questions. Um, in you know, questions that allowed me to um, explain the important things, probing questions. <laughs> I just want to learn. I just want to learn shit. I just, if I, I just want to. I think, and I think it's also very uh, something that I've I've actually grown tired of is just seeing people not being able to have honest conversations or question things, and that it's not a disrespectful thing to ask something when you ask it with respect because you really want to learn or you really want to be told that you're wrong about something like there were a couple of instances that I was actually wrong about the things that I that I knew and you were like no that's wrong and that for me that's awesome you know because the more you don't know the more you're gonna you're gonna learn and that's that's beautiful in itself so thank you I think just on that note there um you know if, when I said oh you're wrong I think we, we all need to be careful with um, there isn't necessarily always a right answer. There isn't necessarily always a right and wrong. There are, yeah. you know, there are certain examples that, you know, if you um, decided to walk across the Monash Freeway without looking, you would probably get hit by a car. But there are certain things, like there is, I don't, I'd have to look more into it, but what you were saying about the high percentage body fat and affecting the immune function, I don't think there's no kind of, like, there's, there's nothing black and white when it comes to health other than the food allergy thing that I mentioned before. Um, and that's, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a key thing to remember. It's science has always run the risk and does run the risk of being um, very reductionist, if that makes sense. If you're, if you're looking for an answer, a yes or no answer, um, that's when things go wrong. So keeping an open mind. Yeah, definitely. Love yeah. it. Yeah, cool. Thank you, Zoe. Let's say bye to everyone. And um, hopefully we can, we can have another conversation because I think we have a lot of things that we can talk about. Nice, no, certainly. I, I love that. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you, Zoe. Bye. See you later. Thank you guys for tuning in for this episode uh, with Zoe. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and learned a lot of new things and uh, maybe you have a reframed perspective about what you're putting in your mouth and what's giving you uh, sustenance to live this beautiful life if you liked uh, this episode i have other episodes as well that i've uploaded previously and i upload one episode every single friday on spotify and it's also will be available on youtube among other platforms uh, get in touch with me if you have any questions uh, you can find me on instagram and facebook at the pav podcast the same name as the podcast thank you so much and have a wonderful week bye